0: You know, we have a different attitude towards large groups of people than, uh, than sometimes our Lord does. Uh, by way of illustration, let me just remind you of something that we learn about the heart of Christ. In the book of Mark, we're told that there was a great crowd of people in, in Mark 6. It says they ran ahead of him and his disciples on foot from all the towns. They got there ahead of them And Jesus is on the boat, and he says, when he got ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, stop there for a minute. I just want you to think about this. If there's a great crowd of people gathered, because you're there, does that make you feel pretty special? What's the heart of Christ towards this great crowd? I think you and I tend to have a a certain disposition, like, wow, you know, it's a a big party. This is a big concert. It's a big event. It's a festival. Jesus, we are told, Has this disposition. He went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Today, as we open God's Word, we're going to talk about sheep and shepherds. God's design for his people on earth is not a crowd. It's a decently ordered, called-out assembly. There are those who are the called-out assembly, and there are those who are called by God to lead the called-out assembly, called to shepherd them, given orders from Christ. That's God's design. He calls out the church, and he calls out her shepherds. It's like a healthy marriage. In a healthy marriage, you're going to have a wife and a husband. In a healthy family, you're going to have children and you're going to have parents. In each situation, each will flourish if we follow God's design. God desires good shepherds to care for his beloved church. And God wants his flock who are spiritual beings made in God's image and born again to faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit, to be cared for, to be fed, to be led. And spiritually, this is primarily a matter of teaching sound doctrine and obedience to it. Now, Pastor Daniel has invited me to reflect on this relationship between those God appoints to lead and those who God appoints to follow. And our passage today will be taken from Hebrews 13. We're going to focus on verses 17 through 19, but for context, please join me in reading Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 21. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Follow with me. Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good, For the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to enter, to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, they're burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Obey your leaders and submit to them for the keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our message today is going to center in on verses 17, 18, and 19 of Hebrews 13. And I'm going to be very, very deliberate with you and ask you to bear with me. I'm going to go word by word through this and really invite you to just slow and deep meditate on this passage. The first phrase that we're going to look at from Hebrews 13 verse 17 is the phrase, obey your leaders and submit to them. The first word we have there is obey. And this is the word that means to be persuaded by, to yield to, to be confident in. Where well, there's no chain of command, everybody's a rogue actor. And this is a great problem that we have in our modern culture in America. Everybody likes to be their own boss, don't we? Everyone likes to have their own free thought. We're in love with that own free thinking. The book of Proverbs says what? Be not wise in your own eyes. What's the last verse of the book of Judges, that tragic history of Israel? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We need to have guidance. God is not interested in an animated but disorganized crowd. God designs order. and One of his orders is to obey your leaders. You think about it, no endeavor goes far. No community stays together. No family flourishes where there's constant conflict. It can't be on mission, right? You can't play the game when you have a constantly inflamed joint, can you? You just can't do that. There must be direction and counsel given, and the same must be yielded to, obeyed. Now, as we go at this, I'm going to just, I know your space for notes in your bulletin is very short. I'm just going to give you six things to write down if you want to. So don't feel like you need to write down everything. The main first point is this, church, follow your leader. That, that's the first point. Number one, follow your leader. There's a kind of covenant that should exist between a leader of a church and the church body itself. Now, you might know the names and insights of dozens of Bible teachers that you listen to, podcasts, and whatever it may be. i got news for you. Those people don't know you. They don't know your name. They're not praying for you. You have a pastor who's praying for you. I received a text early this morning from your pastor at this church who is praying for you. It's fine to have teachers who are teaching sound doctrine, but that person is not the pastor of this church. I want you to let that sink in deep. You need to be in a covenantal relationship as a church with your pastor. It says obey what? Your leaders, your chief, your commander, your authority. It's interesting the book of Hebrews never uses the word elder. There's certain words that just don't show up in this epistle for one reason or another. It's the word leader. And for context, you can see back in verse seven, the description of leaders. Remember your leaders, and then the author writes: Those who spoke to you the word of God, so they're the evangelists who presented the gospel and who taught you God's word. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate Their faith. These are the disciplers. These are the people who set the example in a church. It says leaders. You notice that? Obey your leaders. So you obey your leaders. That I think indicates perhaps a a good circumstantial case for a plurality of leaders in a church. It's It's a healthy church where it doesn't all pin down on one person, but there's a plurality of leaders, of elders. It says to submit to them. That's the same idea as obey, to yield authority to. Yielding is an important discipline of the Christian life. If you're not yielding to your leader, they're not being your leader. It's just like in the workplace, just like in the military. Someone's got to be the boss. Someone's got to make the call. There needs to be respect for the rank, respect for the structure, respect for the role. And you need to yield to them. And I think the context here is that there's a lot of diverse, strange teachings. Look at 13 verse 9. If you look back there, it says what? Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. So there's, there's a lot of ideas out there. And you need to be in sound doctrine And so a lot of things are set up against the gospel of Christ. A good shepherd is trying to lead the church into healthy, good, and godly life. You need to yield authority to the evangelists, teachers, the disciplers who teach and lead by an example. And you need to do this to your own leaders. You know, it's just like Ephesians chapter 5 where it says what? Wives, submit to your own husbands, right? It doesn't say you submit to every husband. It says you submit to your own husband. That's just like a church should submit to their own leaders. I think in Hebrews ten, we see the context, you know, not to if you if you look back at Hebrews ten, it, it describes the gathering of believers, and, and I think we can infer from this, this is the gathering that is the church. Verse twenty two, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Those are descriptions of the church carrying out and living out the gospel life. I love the name of this church. It's very much this life. It's, it's living this out. This is what we do in church. Not everyone can be the leader, the teacher, the elder. There must be a relationship here. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. So point number one, follow the leader. Now we'll talk at the end about some, some challenges, right? Because not every leader is perfect. And we, we need to just face those difficulties. But I will tell you this. If you're like me, it's probably too quick that you jump to, yeah, but what if? <laughs> the first instruction we see, receive is, follow the leader. Obey your leaders. The second point that I want to draw your attention to in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Point number two, leaders do soul work. The work of the leader in the church is to do soul work. That's point number two, if you're taking notes. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This keeping watch idea is a sleepless attentiveness. I can tell you that when people in, underneath my ministry and care are going through a difficult time, struggling with issues, dealing with distress, as a pastor, it is hard to sleep. And many times in the middle of the night when I wake up, I find myself praying for people in the midst of varied different kinds of need. And I promise you, that's what your pastor is dealing with too. It's not just the kids that wake a pastor up in the middle of the night the needs of the flock. They weigh heavily. He's keeping watch over your souls. No one is going to pray for you so much as your pastor. I want you to, I want you to let that sink in. I want you to let that sink in. Your pastor prays for you. That is soul work, what the pastor does. It says he's keeping watch over your soul, the the breath of life, the seat of all your desires. He's praying over your soul. He's keeping watch over your soul. You know, sadly, modern ideas of church are, well, pastors keep watch over a show. No, it says he keeps watch over your soul. Well, pastors keep watch over our social club. No, pastors keep watch over your soul. Oh, pastors, keep everything organized in our system. No, pastors, keep watch over your soul. (laughs) Some of us, I think, in churches, we get very active and it's almost like, you know, we're this running advertisement. You know, we are busy. We're just busy. We're constantly running around. We're doing things. A pastor's concern should not be about the activity of the church, but your soul. That's the job of the pastor. That's what the pastor is doing, keeping watch over your soul. And, and the scripture says that the pastor, the elders, have to give an account. That's a, the idea of a verbal report. You ever have to get called in to give a report in front of a committee, in front of your boss, and you know, in front of a client? You have to give this report. That's The pastors have that. We have to give a report, an account. And I think about what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents. Do you remember that? A master goes on a trip. He gives amounts of money to his servants. And then what does he do when he comes back? He calls them together and he says, all right, give a report. What did you do with the money that you got? That's the idea. A pastor is given by God the trust of a flock of souls. And the good shepherd is going to call upon every pastor someday to say, what did you do for people I gave you. And on that day, it will not do for the pastor to say, I became very famous. I said a lot of things. God's going to say, how are the souls of the people that I entrusted to you? To keep watch over your souls. One of the greatest concerns in pastoral ministry is the fear of man talking to a friend this week who's in ministry. I said, you've been in ministry a while, brother. What have you learned? He goes, oh, I struggle with the fear of man. It's the hardest thing in pastoral ministry. You, you worry about what, what do people think? Well, oh, no, what's going to happen? COVID made it really hard for everybody who's in ministry, right? Everybody had a thousand ideas about what to do during this period of years. And pastors struggle with this. But what they have to remember is that they are to give an account to the Lord. And at the end of the day, a pastor, although you may think he works at your behest, that you hire a pastor, the pastor is accountable to the Lord. He must give an account to the Lord. And that is a much more sobering thing than having to answer the disagreements of a bunch of people. I had a, the first time I was um, basically what they call licensed for pastoral ministry. That's before you're ordained, they license you. I was in Illinois, and then the elder who was uh, in charge of that licensing committee, his name was Bruce. I'll never forget Bruce, very wisely. He'd been in ministry close to 30 years. Such a kind man. And he said to me, you know, I'm still learning that God has not called me to please everybody in my church, but God has called me to love everybody. Everybody in my church. It's like, wow, that's, I'll never forget that one. The pastor needs to be accountable to God, to love the church, to do what is pleasing in God's sight. You look at thirteen verse twenty-one. The the vision of what this looks like. That this benediction that God will equip you with everything good that you may what do His will working that which is pleasing in whose sight? His sight. So the church is aiming to please God, and the shepherds of the church are aiming to please God. I'll tell you what, when, 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 you're, when you're just focused on one another, all you're going to see is your weaknesses. And look, the same is true in a marriage, right? You get married, what happens? When the wife looks at the husband, she's like, well, you're a disaster. <laughs> the husband's like, well, you're nasty. And you start looking at one another, right? And it's just, this is conflict. What do you need to do? You need to look at God, right? A wife's job is to say, Lord, I'm going to obey Christ. I'm going to follow Christ. And the husband's job is, I, can, I need to be Christ in this relationship. I need to look there. With the church and pastors, it's the same kind of relationship. We have to aim to please the Lord. The third point here, and this is for the church. Church, aim to be a joy, not a grief. Aim to be a joy and not a grief. Verse 17 continues, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Them refers to the leaders, the elders, the pastors in your church. Let them do what? Well, let them keep watch over your souls. Let them give an account with joy and not with grief. The joy is just deep gladness. John, you remember John in his little epistles, he says, there's no greater joy that I have than than that my children walk in the truth. It's the same expression. It's like there's nothing more satisfying as a pastor than than to look out over your flock and go, they're walking in the truth. (laughs) Nothing makes you happier. When you're a parent, you see it with your kids. Man, my kids, they're following the Lord. Nothing makes you happier. When before God in prayer, And then one day, face-to-face, every leader in God's church has to give an account, and it's an amazing blessing to do that with gladness. Now, the opposite situation is when you do that with groaning or with grief. Remember what Stephen, when he was given his speech in the book of Acts, Stephen's remembering to a bunch of people who will soon stone him to death. (laughs) He's remembering to them the story of Israel, and he describes the people of Israel as they were in slavery, calling out to God. You remember what in Acts 7, the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. That's the kind of groaning that pastors sometimes have over people. I don't know if you realize that. You ever think about that? If your life is such that you are causing your pastor to groan with sadness, it's like the grief of the people of Egypt who are suffering in their slavery. Do you really want to be the sort of person who your pastor cries out to God in their prayer closets daily on account of? Is that the sort of person you want to be? Don't aim to be that. Aim to be a joy, not to be a grief. Listen, I've been to many funerals as a pastor, and especially as a pastor involved in the ministry of music. I kind of go to all of them. I've been to probably over 100 now in 10 years of ministry. No one speaks ill of the dead, I'll tell you that. But this is the truth. You can tell when a pastor's giving a eulogy over someone who has been a joy. You can tell that pastor is full of testimony about that sheep whose faith has become sight. And they're just praising God. And they're saying, this person was such a blessing to me. And that is a beautiful thing to see. You can decide today whether you, as a church, are going to be a joy for your pastor to pray over or if you're going to be a grief. In the end, the pastor has to give an account. So aim to be a joy, not a grief. Point number four. Church, you need to consider the purposeless vanity of an ungodly life. Consider the vanity of an ungodly life because verse... 17 continues, that would be of no advantage to you. That is referring to the scenario where you are causing grief as your leaders have to shepherd you. The soul work is a burden. It's of no advantage. It's unprofitable. It says that will be no advantage to you. It's the idea of vanity. There's a lot of ways to waste your life. And as God's beloved family we should look forward to the reward that God promises us when we submit to Him and to His design. Don't aim to be a wasting care for your pastor. That's, that's my appeal to you. It's of no advantage to you. I'm going to tell you something as a pastor um, that is maybe hard for you to hear and may surprise you. So, I'll tell you a story, and then I'll just speak personally. I had a a friend who was early on in his ministry, an intern at a church, and and the senior pastor was someone we both knew. He was a a well-seasoned, experienced, godly pastor. And my friend, Jonathan was his name, Jonathan told me there was this lady in the church who was a real problem. He's like, I'm just telling you the problems that she, it was, and he goes, my heart was so burdened for this lady. I kept praying the Lord would change her heart and change her and just give her a different spirit and all that. And she said, one day I, I went to, to Pastor Rich, and, and I said, man, I'm just praying for her. God would change her heart. And that senior pastor said, that's interesting. I'm praying she'll leave. Now, that sounds harsh to you, but that's the truth. You have no idea the kind of prayers that I pray over people in my church. Sometimes I pray that God would crash into their life and arrest them and absolutely put them down to the point where they will repent because the kind of sins that a pastor has to be privy to will break your heart. I dare not speak of them. They're just so heavy. God, get a hold of that person's life. Sometimes the sins that that person is in, they're clearly so non-repentant. There is no life. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said of Hymenaeus and Alexander? He says what? He writes it. I handed them over to Satan so they would learn not to blaspheme. You may never think that your pastor prays crazy prayers, but sometimes we have to. You don't want that, friends. don't want that for your soul, for your family. No. It's not being mean-spirited. It's being real. When you come face to face with sin, which is soul work, by the way, you'd be shocked the kind of things that as a pastor you end up on your knees in tears over, praying for. You know too much. You see too much. That's no advantage to you when your pastor is before God begging that God would do hard work in your life. A temple cleansing You don't want that, but sometimes that's what pastors have to do, and that's no advantage to you, so don't go that way. Verse 18. Now, here's the work of the church, and this becomes point number five. Prayer is the best spiritual health practice in church. Prayer. You've been told that your elders have to give an account and that Your pastors pray for you. Well, prayer is the best spiritual health practice in church. And what does the author say here? The author says, pray for us, right? People will come to me as a pastor complaining about X, Y, and Z. And as a musician, I get it all (laughs) usually five seconds before the service. Why do we always sing that? Why don't we sing this? I don't like this. I don't like that. And I've learned that one of the first things that I need to say is, please pray for me. Usually because at that moment I want to unload a can of explanation upon that person. Pray for me. Because what? There is no way that person is praying for me when they're thinking all kinds of nonsense at awkward moments. Pray for me. I don't have a perfect. Pray for me. Pray for your pastors. Pray for one another. That's your job as a church. Pray for us. It's interesting here because we don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews was. But there's this intimation that, that the author or the speaker, if this is a recorded sermon, has a relationship with the readers or with the hearers. And so, there, you, know, you know who we are. Pray for us. You know who your pastor is. Pray for your pastors. Listen, if you're going home and you're complaining about your pastor's, Going back to where you know, you're know you a guest, maybe you, you have a home church somewhere else. If you're complaining about your pastors, stop. Pray for them. They don't have it all right. Pray for them. This is the appeal, the begging appeal. Listen, in a, in a marriage, what? Does, does the husband always have it right? Pfft. No, <laughs> we do not. What do we need? Pray for us. We don't have it right. We get it wrong a lot. If you pray for one another, in a church, does your pastor get everything right? No. Pray for your pastor. Your pastor's praying for you. The verse continues. We are sure that we have a clear conscience. So a church leader needs to be confident before God that their conscience is properly functioning and that they're not being hypocrites. Like the, the pastor needs to, before God, know that, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not faking this thing. I am genuine. I'm sincere. And so he says that, you know, I, I'm a, I have a good state of soul. A, a good state of what respects right and wrong. I'm, I'm sincere in my love for you. Pray for us. Because what? The, the pastor wants to act Honorably in all things, the verse goes on. And that honorably is that healthy, honest state of well being. You don't want to be dishonorable. You don't want to lose your integrity as a pastor. You want to be honorable above all things. Pray for your pastors, pray for them. And if you have in a church where deacons are serving in a role where they are also your leaders, pray for your deacons. Pray. I think that it's maybe the most unmeasured metric in church for church problems is number one, pastors who fail to pray for their church, members by name, and then church. Who fails to regularly pray for their pastors? You know, I mean, think about all the metrics, all the barna right? You know, how happy are you in your church today compared to last year? How many young people do you have in your church compared you know, in the age between 16 and 24? You know, how many of them? Listen. Do you pray for your pastor? Does your pastor pray for you by name? I'd like to know what churches. And here's, here's just a reality. And I, this is not, I'm not, I don't want to swing hard against large churches. But I will tell you, the larger your church is, the harder it really is for your leaders to pray for you by name. The smaller your church is, the easier it is to be faithful at that. And there's a blessing in a healthy, small church where your pastor is praying for you every week by name, praying for your children by name who knows you and cares for you. That's a beautiful thing. Pray for your pastor. Let your pastor know who you are and pray for you. Verse 19 gets very, very personal. So if if prayer is the best health care, spiritually, that you can do in your church, the last point is that prayer is practical. It's very practical. Look what he says in verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Apparently, the author or the speaker or the writer here is at some remove. There's, there's a need for being able to get back and visit with these folks. Earnest prayer. Often, what, that's usually fasting, right? I mean, that's what fasting is, is it's earnest prayer. It's urged here. The reason's practical. The author is waylaid. We don't know the whole circumstance. We know this. We know that the Greek of Hebrews is the same Greek as Luke and Acts. It's an ornate Koine Greek. It would make sense that Luke is the writer. There's nowhere else in the New Testament we have the same kind of Greek. It's a high and advanced writing but we know that theology is Pauline. It would make sense if Paul is giving this message and if Luke is the amanuensis writing it all down. It's a long epistle. That would make sense. I don't know, but that's the best guess that I'll give you. And it would make sense if Paul is waylaid that he's in prison. And it would make sense that earlier in chapter 13, he goes, remember those who are where? In prison as though you were there with them. Those who are mistreated, the Apostle Paul was mistreated. Remember them. It's likely Paul, maybe one of his companions, writing from prison. The simple fact is that we learn here God answers prayer lifted up on behalf of others in their distress. I always get these interesting conversations with people I have a high view of God and his sovereignty. But I always find these conversations in church with people, I always find it very interesting. You know, but God, if he is sovereign, he knows everything in advance. You know, why should we pray? And they get really, really this you know, deep, you know, esoteric way of thinking. And I'm like, well, I think the Bible says pray. And I think that God answers prayer. And I don't think you're smarter than God to figure that out. So how about you just pray for folks? Let's not overthink this. He says, pray. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should pray that things will happen because it's effective. And be practical about your prayers. Let's believe that God can do things we can't imagine. God is a most free being. He can do whatever he wants. Pray. Now, in closing, let me just run you through a couple thoughts here. There are some issues and objections that folks have. First is the level of objection to church and pastors. Let me tell you this. There's a lot of people that go into churches, and they float through, and they window shop. You know? It's like going to the zoo. What would you see at the zoo today? We saw a tiger. It was in a cage. It was quite safe. As a pastor, my prayer is that people will not come through and just watch church like you're watching an animal in the zoo. I get scary sometimes when I pray. In fact, I prayed for a kid. I prayed for a kid this week that he would meet Christ the tiger in the middle of the night and be terrified by the Lord. Instead of just sitting around and watching, you need to get on the field. You need to get in there. Some people object, well, isn't Jesus enough for me? Why do I have to have a church? I don't like church. It's goofy. Welcome to reality. Welcome to humanity. Everything is goofy. Everything is goofy. It is. But Christ doesn't want us to be window shoppers. He wants us to be ordered. He wants there to be shepherds who are yielded to. I, I, I went, I got called into a hospice facility the other week to pray over a stranger. This dear soul was passing away and gathered families around. And I'm telling you, I, it was a cold call. And I went and it was sad. And I mean, this individual passed away within an hour. I don't know who they are. You know what I want to do? I don't want to be. I want to care for the people in my church. Those people needed a pastor. They knew they needed to be. They needed to have someone who was praying and watching over their soul. Someone who would present the gospel to them before the hour was gone. I get a lot of calls from people who they, they don't want to be. In, I don't want to be involved in church. I don't want to be pinned down. Oh, stop it. Who am I supposed to pastor and pray for if it's the entire town? No, God gives a certain flock of people and he gives me to them. Pray for one another. People ask the same question. Why does a local church matter so much? Aren't we all part of the universal church? Well, yeah, but you live in a moment and in a time and you want somebody who knows you. I think more people don't want to be known, and that's why they won't commit to a church. They don't want someone to do soul work over them. You and I both have seen lots of what happens with children that are never disciplined. Amen? You ever see that in our culture? You can walk along the streets of any city in America, and you can go, y'all were never disciplined. You never had parents who looked after you. That's a reality in our culture. You see that. Well, in church, it's supposed to be a family where we care for one another. We sharpen one another. We edify. We build up. We encourage. Those things, that's part of what we are supposed to experience in a church family structure. That doesn't happen when you're just trying to pin yourself up to the meta-universal church. You need to be someone who knows you by name, who will take time to get to know you, who will say to you the hard things like, you need to work on this. Someone who's willing to put money into your account and make a withdrawal. You know what I'm saying? You need that. Every kid needs that in their life. Someone who will play the role of a parent in their life and say, I love you, I'm here for you, and stop it. <laughs> you need that. Every, what's a coach that never tells you what you need to work on? A bad coach. You say, okay, well, what if my pastor has some serious failings, Some of you have come from places and bad experiences where pastors have had serious failings. Well, you pray for them. And if there's sin that needs addressed, you go to them, just like the scripture says. You go and you try to restore that person one-on-one. If they won't hear that, then you need to bring witnesses. And you you need to bring witnesses and confront. That's part of body life. What happens if you're in a family and a parent is misbehaving, doing things wrong? What do you have to do? You got to confront that. You got to deal with that. Sometimes you need counseling. Sometimes you need a mediator to get involved, right? But a lot of people are like, "Ah, oh, I just don't like that pastor. I don't like his preaching style. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to someplace else." Is like that. Is that really how you want to live your whole life? Do you want your families to be like that? Is that what? Do you want your kids to just go? I don't really like my family. I'm going to go away. Listen, you know, so no pastor is perfect. You're going to have to deal with that. If there's real sin and sin issues, then as a church, you need to bring that forward. If the pastor is just a little bit goofy and you can't get used to him, well, pray for him and work with him. That's just, welcome to the world, right? What if my pastor isn't teaching sound doctrine? Approach that, right? If, if the pastor is, is veering away from the word of God, the pastor needs to be corrected by the word of God because there is a great shepherd to whom we all give an account. And graciously bring that forward. This is where authority lies. The Holy Spirit speaks here. This is the sure and steady ground of truth. Go here. Speak here. If a pastor refuses, then that's the point at which he got to go. And if he ain't going, then you got to go. I get that. What if my pastor's plainly wrong about some matter? Well, I handle it graciously, you know, when I'm plainly wrong about some matter. My wife handles it graciously. No, that's not how it is, honey. She'll say to me, okay, you're right. (laughs) Think about it. The church is important because the pastor should pray for the flock God calls, and the church should submit to the leader. There is, in Hebrews 13, a recipe for a godly church. I won't preach this. This is another message. It's a beautiful message. It's an encouraging message. The portrait of godliness from verses 1 through 16, where, what do you do? You're hospitable to strangers, where you keep yourself pure in your marriages and sexually pure, because that's a big issue. Um, You think about how you're constantly showing hospitality, um, the kind of love and giving. You're not in love with money, but what do you do? You you care for those in need. If God gives you something, you're quick to give it away. Beautiful portrait of godliness in a church. But here's the six things I want to say, and then we'll look at the benediction. Follow your leader, number one. Leaders do soul work, number two. Number three, it's a church aimed to be a joy. And beware, number four, the vanity of an ungodly life. Number five, prayer is the best practice. Number six, prayer is very practical. The good news for all of us, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, isn't that what we want in our church is peace? May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, there's power the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the ultimate pastor. By the blood of the eternal covenant, that's a forever promise. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to invite Anna and Mandy back up and we're going to sing a hymn as we close here. Uh, This is an old hymn. Some of you might know this, but it, it reminds us that God is our shepherd, Savior like a shepherd lead us. Let's sing this as we close as a song of prayer. I invite you to stand together.